0: I'll never forget when I, a colleague of mine, uh, an economist who studies uh, the behavioral economics of religion, uh, said that he'll never forget um, seeing a friend of his, very addicted to heroin, bowed down on his knees, uh, you know, shooting up. And how he was reminded in that moment how visually um, he, he looked as if he was a person in prayer or in worship. And I, that image will always stay with me.
1: It's kind of haunting. Yeah yeah and 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 sad sad and distressing and there's so much sadness and distress associated with addiction and it's great that you're welcome to dig life deep with john aiden Byrne. we keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people If you've ever wondered why we are reading reports and hearing about soaring rates of depression, anxiety, pain and suicide around the world, especially in the wealthiest nations, you will be totally absorbed by my guest coming up, Dr. Anna Lemke, a psychiatrist and a professor at Stanford University. Dr. Lemke has a refreshing empathy and compassion for the many victims of our modern-day curse rooted in overdoses of what is known as dopamine. She will explain and boil it all down in simple terms. You might want to start looking at all the smartphones and cell phones people are on these days. Look at them on the highways and byways and in the malls and streets and restaurants. Everybody seems to be on a cell phone texting, sort of going crazy in a way. Anyway, it's this idea that she is looking at and exploring because our digital addictions to iPhones and computers explains much of the reason for the flood of this dopamine hitting our brains and resulting in depression, according to Dr. Lemke. She's the author of the groundbreaking dopamine nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. It's published by Dutton. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Sherlock, sure it's grand to have you back. I hope you're all well. I'm excited to tell you about my upcoming talk on Thursday, November the 11th at 7pm at the lovely Library of the Chathams in Morris County, New Jersey. We will dig life deep. And defend the American dream. That's the topic of my talk. Hope to see you there. You can also watch the talk on Zoom. The library is located at 214 Main Street in Chatham, New Jersey, 07928. That's the library of the Chatham's And you can go to chathamlibrary.org for Zoom and more details. That's C-H-A-T-H-A-M-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y.org for Zoom and more details.
0: Hey world, I have a quick message. It's about safe driving. All right, let's go. Anytime you're driving, have the seatbelt buckle tight. Both hands on the wheel and your phone out of sight. We're not in your hand trying to text somebody back. Because if you do, your car might get smacked. The moral of the story, just put your phone down. The people on the road will stay safe and sound. Put your phone down, put your phone down. People on the road will stay safe and sound. Yeah.
1: (laughs) My guest is Dr. Anna Lemke, a psychiatrist and professor at Stanford University and author of the new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Dr. Anna, welcome to my show. Thank you for doing this because you've been very busy on the speaking rounds, getting a tremendous reaction to your new book and to this whole area of addiction. Now, we know addictions uh, are on the rise in the West, in the US, but the way you described it puts it in starker terms than I thought was possible. So can you take us through that and tell us where we're at?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I do think that when we look at the public health problems that are going to be most pressing in the next 100 to 500 years, I do think that addiction will make uh, the top, or the top five of that list. And the reason for that is essentially that we've reached a tipping point in terms of our social, economic, uh, cultural development such that we are um, now, we, we ourselves have created a world for which our primitive brains are not well adapted. And until we individually and collectively figure out how to bridge the gap between our primitive brains and the world we've created, it's going to be a real
1: challenge. How did we get to this point today? You talk about uh, the prosperity in the West, the rise of digital media, the rise of pleasure seeking, and uh, we're in a crazy place, it seems.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the most significant factors is just the incredible technological innovation, Uh, you know, beginning 200, 250 years ago with the Industrial Revolution, which has allowed for a number of different developments. Number one, it's allowed for us to have much more leisure time than ever uh, before in the history of humankind across the board, not just for wealthy people, but also uh, for poor people, such that not only do we have more time on any given day. um, For example, we average now about four hours of leisure time a day in the West, by 2040, um, the prediction is that we will have on average seven to eight hours of leisure time a day. That's a tremendous amount of leisure time. Um, we also are living longer than ever before. So you know, on average, for most of human existence, people died at age 30. Now they're living on average to age 80, 90. So not only do we have more time on any given day, we have more days. And yet we haven't yet figured out what to do with that additional time. The reason for those additional days and additional leisure time is essentially technology, which has created machines that do much of our work for us, um, that efficiently manufacture food more than we need in most places of the world today. And also, of course, technology has created the kinds of medical interventions that prevent people from dying young. So technology has allowed for more time. At the same time, technology has allowed for an incredible um, innovation in the quantity, access, potency, potency, and novelty of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, um, which makes a big difference when we think about addiction risk, because um, the more of a drug we have access to and the more potent that drug, the more likely we are to get addicted to that drug. So we've essentially created um, a, a drugified world. Um, and we have much more time in which to pursue that in as a leisure activity, and I think the re- the result is is clearly, um, you know, has has some serious consequences. If you look at um, sort of lead, the leading cause of deaths around the world, seventy percent of global deaths today are due to modifiable risk factors, including. Uh, poor diet, inactivity, and smoking.
1: You wrote about all of this in Dopamine Nation. Uh, that's been out uh, a while now. So uh, sort of take us through that. But before you do that, just just give us some of these staggering statistics, if you will, that kind of gives us an idea of how serious the addiction problem is in the West.
0: Sure. So um, again, there's the global health a problem, which essentially suggests that we are titillating ourselves to death. If you look just at alcohol use disorder, we've seen an 80% increase in women with alcohol use disorder in the past two decades. We've seen a 50% increase in alcohol use disorder among older people. That's very significant because these are demographics that previously uh, were thought to be insulated from the problem of addiction. Um, We're seeing more global deaths in all age categories from addiction, and half of those deaths are in people under the age of 50. And then, of course, in the United States, we have this devastating opioid epidemic where we have uh, 90,000-plus drug drug overdose deaths in any given year. Um, And the majority of those deaths are attributable to opioids.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure during uh, the height of the COVID pandemic, there was a tremendous surge in abuse because of social isolation and other factors.
0: You're absolutely right. It's very tragic because opioid overdose deaths and drug drug overdose deaths have been steadily increasing in the United States since the late 1990s. Uh, drug overdose deaths quadrupled between 1999 and 2012 and then plateaued, but continued to rise, especially with the introduction of illicit fentanyl um, in 2013, 2014. We saw a little ray of light around 2018, where for the first time, uh, drug overdose deaths decreased slightly in this country, but then once COVID hit, um, they went up again. So it's it's been a real and ongoing tragedy.
1: Yeah, that's so sad. It really is. So when the lawmakers asked us to socially isolate, that kind of cured the pandemic on one level, but then we had all this social isolation created another set of psychological problems.
0: Oh, absolutely. Especially for people living alone. I will say that in my own clinical practice, COVID and quarantine um, had two divergent aspects. I had some patients for whom it was much easier to uh, be in recovery from their addiction during quarantine because they weren't constantly being triggered by going out into society. Um, So for some people, quarantine was really a positive. But clearly, uh, I also had patients for whom it was devastating. I had patients who died, um, several patients who sadly drug overdosed during during quarantine and during COVID. So
1: that is absolutely stunning and shocking. We probably would uh, have guessed that, but to hear it uh, is, is something, it, it brings it home. Tell us about your book. That's got a tremendous reaction from the general public and I suppose the medical professionals out there.
0: Yeah. So I'm surprised, right? I, I the, the book, the message of the book is that essentially that the relentless pursuit of pleasure for its own sake um, ultimately leads to anhedonia, or the inability to take pleasure in anything. And I talked about the neuroscience um, and why that is, why the pursuit of pleasure leads to pain. And ultimately I hold out um, for the reading public, the idea that we need to um, issue or reject pleasure for its own sake and embrace painful um, activities. And so that's not a message that I thought would be particularly popular uh, with the average reader, but of course it's been very gratifying to see that it has resonated.
1: You in a an opinion piece that you wrote uh, spoke about a patient you had once came into your clinic, and he was addicted to video games. That's right. And you in the the past might have recommended an antidepressant, but in this instance, you told him to go on a fast from. His video games, it seemed to have worked.
0: Yes, that's right. And that's a, first of all, let me say that every patient that I've written about in detail has given me their um, consent to do so okay. as did, as did this young man. And you're absolutely right. My my practice has really shifted in the last 25 years. Um, this young man came in with anxiety and depression. His parents felt he was addicted to video games. He did not agree In his mind, the video games were a relief or an escape from his anxiety. 20 years ago, had I seen this young man in my practice, the first thing I would have done was prescribe an antidepressant. Today, the first thing I do with a patient like this, and I see many patients um, like this with, with similar problems, I recommend a dopamine fast, which is to say I suggest that they abstain from their drug of choice, whether it's video games or alcohol or cannabis or social media or what have you for 30 days. And I explained to them my reasoning behind that was which is essentially that what feels to them like the video game is relieving their anxiety and depression is actually driving the anxiety and depression. And once we understand the neuroscience of pleasure and pain, that becomes very clear why that is. And when I do this intervention and I explain the neuroscience, patients are willing to give it a try, many of them. And about of them will come back after a month of fasting from their drug of choice and report significant improvements in mood and anxiety just by fasting alone without any other intervention.
1: Wow, that's amazing. But I got to believe that that's tough for some patients, especially if they're, you know, cocaine users or alcohol abusers. I mean, going cold turkey, do they break into sweats every night or during the day? Is it Can they get through the 30 days fasting without some serious pain?
0: Um, so it's, it's a great point. Let me just um, emphasize that addiction is a spectrum disorder from mild, moderate to severe. And even before mild, there's sort of compulsive overconsumption, which all of us can relate to, mm. which doesn't necessarily meet threshold criteria for addiction. And yes, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, giving up our drug of choice, no matter where we are on the addiction spectrum, is very painful. Um, the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance include anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, And craving. And then beyond that, many drugs have a significant physiological withdrawal syndrome, um, you know, including um, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, body pain. So it is very painful. Some patients cannot do it on their own um, and need to go into a residential treatment setting in order to be able to do that. Um, Some patients shouldn't do it on their own because um, in some cases withdrawal can be life-threatening and those people need to go into a hospital and be medically supervised. But I will say that the vast majority of patients um, on the addiction spectrum um, are able to safely give up their drug of choice for a month. And yes, it is painful, but when they are able to do it, um you know the the benefits um multiply the longer that they can go and so that, that, you know it really does start with abstinence cuz abstinence is necessary and is fundamental to resetting reward pathways so that people can stop constantly craving and also enjoy other more modest rewards and reengage with their in their lives in a healthy way
1: you know you look at society today and we just, you just described it um we were, we're bombarded with pleasure-seeking opportunities, digital media, um, increasing wealth, uh, however you measure that, um, entertainment industry. And now we have individual states uh, pushing legalized marijuana
0: that's right. That's right. Not just legalized, but also medicalized. Um, you know, mm-hmm. this, this idea that it's even safe to use because it's medicine. And of course, cannabis does have um, over 400 different um, ingredients in it, some of which do have real health benefits in the short term. The problem is that smoking anything is bad for you. And the the adverse effects of smoking probably outweigh the short-term medicinal benefits of um, the molecules uh, that are active in cannabis. But the, you know, standard cultural narrative um, is that it's medicine. So um, many people either are not aware of the potential adverse effects or um, think that the medicinal properties outweigh uh, the harms. And This is, you know, really problematic. For example, in this country with the opioid epidemic, there was um, some early data suggesting that in states where medical marijuana or medicinal cannabis was more readily available, that opioid overdose rates were decreasing. The idea being that if people could transition from opioids to treat their pain to cannabis to treat their pain, they would be less likely to overdose. It is true that um, it's very difficult to overdose and die from cannabis. So that is a benefit that it has over opioids. But the problem is that in terms of pain treatment, there's no reliable evidence that it works long-term for pain. It works short-term for pain, but again, our bodies will adapt. It will stop working. And now the data show, and this is consistent with my clinical experience, that most patients dependent on opioids for their pain who have tried to transition to cannabis and away from opioids end up on both opioids and cannabis uh, with no benefit um, at all.
1: So sort of a gateway drug too, there.
0: Right. And again, just this narrative that it's medicine. And so somehow it's safe or it's not addictive. um, And those those things are, are, um, are not true.
1: My guest is Dr. Anna Lemke, a psychiatrist and professor at Stanford University and author of the new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. How much of what we're seeing in addictions is some kind of a spiritual deficit in our society, a religious deficit, if you will, less people have religious belief, go to church, for example, they seek fulfillment or answers elsewhere. Have you looked at that?
0: Yeah, I think this is a really, um, you know, powerful point. And I think that um, this is true for many people who become addicted. Um, Carl Jung, the very famous uh, psychoanalyst, very early on, um, uh, wrote a letter in which he said that he believed that Uh, At the root cause of addiction was um, the absence of spirituality or or the absence um, of, of God in that person's life. Alcoholics Anonymous is essentially founded on this idea that in order to get into recovery, um, uh, the individual needs to experience a spiritual transformation and a shift of that locus of control away from themselves and towards some higher power. The genius of AA is that um, that AA defined that higher power. However, that individual wanted to define it. It didn't need to be an anthropomorphized personal God. It could be, you know, the mystery of the universe, um, the goodwill of the fellowship itself. Um, since then, there have been a number of um, wonderful books written along these lines as well. This idea that um, you know that that severe addiction is really um, a kind of a counterfeit worship. I'll never forget when I a colleague of mine, uh, an economist who studies uh, the behavioral economics of religion, uh, said that he'll never forget um, seeing a friend of his, very addicted to heroin, bowed down on his knees. Uh, you know, shooting up and how he was reminded in that moment, how visually um, he he looked as if he was a person in prayer or in worship. And I, that image will always stay with me.
1: It's kind of haunting. Yeah. Yeah. and And, and sad, sad and distressing. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much sadness and distress associated with addiction. And it's great that you're at the forefront of really interesting research. So To kind of get our arms around it, dopamine is 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 what's at play here, correct? So if you have too much, too little, or you need a constant fix, um, there has to be a balance.
0: That's right. Dopamine is not the only neurotransmitter involved in the pathophysiology of addiction, but it's probably the most important one, and it's also the final common pathway for all addictive substances and behaviors, and um, the sort of key message in the book is that um, pain and pleasure are co-located in the brain, which is to say the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. um, And that one of the overriding features um, of that balance between pleasure and pain is that the brain wants to preserve homeostasis or a level balance, and it will work very hard to do that. So when we do something that's in that, when we ingest an intoxicant or engage in a behavior that's intoxicating, it releases a whole lot of dopamine in the brain's reward pathway, more really than our primitive brains were designed to accommodate. And in response, what our brains do is downregulate our own dopamine production and transmission as a way to restore a level balance or restore homeostasis. The key feature though, is that we don't just sort of like deplete dopamine to baseline levels, we actually plunge below baseline levels so that we're in a dopamine deficit state. This is the hangover or the the come down, but with persistent bombardment of our dopamine reward pathways with these intoxicating behaviors and substances, essentially our brain has to accommodate that through what's called allostasis by getting into a chronic dopamine deficit state. And that means that we get to the point where nothing else is pleasurable. We're very narrowly focused on our drug of choice. Uh, When we're not using, we're in a constant state of withdrawal, experiencing anxiety, depression, insomnia, craving. And now we need to keep using not to get high, but just to feel normal.
1: You could have that state with uh, abusing alcohol, abusing digital media. Uh, You could be binge purchasing, um, overeating, all those kind of things. You yourself had an addiction. Yes. Can you tell us yes. about that? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So I developed um, a minor addiction to romance novels. I started with the Twilight Saga, which was very transportive for me, um, you know, in my sort of early 40s. And um, it was just sort of I, I forgot about myself. I escaped into this fantasy world for whatever reason. I had never read romance novels previously. I hadn't hadn't discovered them as a younger person. Um, And that sort of sent me on this journey of uh, reading more and more romance novels. Um, Eventually, over time, I needed more potent forms, more graphic erotica to get the same effect, and ultimately found myself you know, having consequences, which is, you know, the the, the sort of sine qua non of addiction is continued compulsive use despite harm to self and or others. And I was staying up late at night, tired the next day, Uh, importantly, no longer taking pleasure in things that used to give me pleasure, like being with my family, like my work. Um, And, and suddenly, you know, really realized that I had developed this minor behavioral addiction and Did what I recommend to my patients, which was to give up my drug of choice for a month with the plan that I would then go back into um, reading in more moderation. But what happened was after a month of abstinence, I actually binged uh, for a whole weekend, um, spent the whole weekend reading romance novels and then really realized, wow, you know, I, I don't think I can even moderate this behavior. Something has changed in my brain and that's when I decided to give it up essentially permanently, which I've, which I've done with some, you know, occasional forays into it. But, you know, in essence, I don't even enjoy um, romance novels anymore. It's like I've burned out those circuits. And a lot of my patients will describe that as well, that when they do try to go back to using their drug of choice after many years of using it, that it doesn't even work for them anymore.
1: You got over your addiction. When people give up their addiction, let's say to alcohol, in some cases they, they develop an, an addiction for something else. Uh, we've seen examples of that. Um, they suddenly become crazy purchasers of automobiles or uh, go on eating binges. So they're not really cured.
0: Well, you're right. I mean, the problem of cross addiction is is very um, pervasive. It's one of the things that, you know, I warn my patients about when they give up their drug of choice. I say, you know, watch out for cross addiction, Um, you know, switching to some other drug or behavior in order to kind of uh, feed this sort of addiction cycle. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something to think about on the, the, I think it's important to emphasize though, that not, not everybody's equally vulnerable to the problem of addiction about 10 to 15% um, of the population has this sort of innate vulnerability. And that's the group that especially has to work, work on this problem of cross addiction. Most of us who develop these minor addictions will be able to give up our you know, our drug of choice and and not um, translate that behavior to something else. But you're also, you're absolutely right. Those with, you know, really with this, this sort of innate propensity to become addicted, what used to be called the addictive personality, which is not language that we're using today, but it's not a bad uh, sort of summative uh, nomenclature. Um, those individuals really do have to struggle because many of them are just people who need that kind of intensity. So the challenge then becomes how to find that intensity in healthy and adaptive ways.
1: So there's a lot of really good success stories. We want to be optimistic here.
0: Yes. Very important to be optimistic. Lots of people even with very severe addictions get into long-term, decades-long recovery, have incredible meaningful lives. Um, you know, our repositories of amazing wisdom as I Talk about in my book, My Patients in Recovery are my heroes. And I do think they're modern day prophets for the rest of us for how to live in this dopamine overloaded world.
1: Well, many of them go on to speak about it, to contribute to the world in a very meaningful way and sure. do brilliant things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, no? I think that's absolutely right.
1: Post addiction and recovery, are there any other tools they can use to get through those? tough times where they may feel drawn back into their earlier addiction? Do you recommend meditation, lots of exercise, um, reading healthy books, um, community involvement? Are there any kind of things like that to get them through those maybe sometimes dark moments?
0: Yeah, I mean, all of those things that you just listed, you know, conceptually in the book, I do talk about this pleasure pain balance and how repeatedly pressing on the pleasure side ultimately tips our hedonic or joy set point to the pain side. And so one of the things that I do recommend in the book is to actually lean into pain, to do things that are painful and challenging as a way to shift our hedonic set point to the pleasure side. And that includes um, physical painful activities like exercise or ice cold water baths, or other physically challenging endeavors. Importantly, not um, extreme forms of pain, extreme forms of pain or pain in very large quantities essentially becomes a drug um, and has the same sorts of effects um, on the dopamine reward pathways as something like cocaine or methamphetamine or heroin. So that's not the recommendation. Um, It's more mild to moderate doses. And then also, um, you know, Psychologically challenging endeavors. Uh, for example, doing something that's cognitively challenging or something that's, um, you know, creatively challenging, or even just kind of thought experiments like radical truth telling. One of the things I've learned from my patients over, over the years is that telling the truth about things large and small is fundamental to staying in recovery. And it's very challenging to do that because we're all natural liars. Um, so m- making a commitment to going through your entire day without telling a single lie is something that I prescribe to my patients and that I believe is beneficial for a variety of reasons uh, for maintaining recovery. And then also I talk about um, the importance of pro-social shame. And again, this is a way of leaning into pain um, instead of pleasure as a way to get into and maintain recovery. And what I what I mean by pro-social pain, uh, pro-social shame is that we are all social creatures and that shame is really a fundamental emotion um, in order to be able to maintain the cohesiveness of the tribe that we belong to. Um, And although shame um, can be devastating and contribute to the cycle of addiction, it also can be the source of motivation for behavior change. So when we embrace pro-social shame, we acknowledge the ways in which we have harmed others Um, We try to make amends uh, for the harm we've done and we try to use that, um, you know, the pro-social shame and wanting to not experience shame in the future as a source of motivation to get into and maintain recovery. So as you say, the connection with other humans, that's, you know, we talk about that often in vague terms, you know, oh, it's good to be connected to other people. Well, how do we make those connections? How do we maintain those connections? I would argue that one of the two of the fundamental ways to do that is radical honesty, where we're completely honest, especially with intimate partners. And number two, pro-social shame, where we regularly look for the ways in which um, we can, um, you know, better ourselves by acknowledging where we've gone wrong.
1: Community, family and humility.
0: That's right. Humility is so fundamental to recovery. And one of the sort of hallmarks of people in sustained recovery, which is why they are my heroes, is just the incredible humility that they bring uh, to their lives. Because, you know, how in many cases, how could they not the kinds of, um, you know, sort of devastating, Harm wrought by their own behavior; that they they have to embrace their brokenness and their humility, and that takes a tremendous amount of courage.
1: It's got to be tough. I mean, so you know, some of these people were dealing with their maybe self esteem, their pride, and so on. So humility, not so easy to to um, put it into practice. When you look at the West today, you talked about soaring rates of addiction. I mean, obviously, that worries the experts and people who care about the world. But do we risk some kind of societal collapse if we don't get a a handle on this very soon?
0: Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. You know, um, I mean, this isn't just a problem of individuals. You know, what's at stake here really is, um, you know, our societies and also our planet our compulsive overconsumption uh, threatens to deplete our natural resources, our forests, fisheries, fuel sources. Um, Also importantly, this kind of um, compulsive overconsumption threatens to make us all, um, you know, addicted persons of a sort in that when people are in their addiction, they value short-term rewards over longer term rewards um, and we know this from, from all different types of studies. For example, functional imaging studies show that when adults adults are engaging in an activity um, that involves short-term rewards, the parts of their brain that lights up is the emotion parts of their brain, the reward pathway part of the brain. Whereas when they're engaging in longer-term delay rewards, they get the prefrontal cortex lighting up. The prefrontal cortex is that gray matter part of our brain right behind our foreheads that's essential for delayed gratification, for future planning, for sorting out consequences of complex problems. So my worry is that we're all so instantaneously gratified Um, in so many ways, not just in terms of substances and recreational behaviors, but even in terms of like, if we have a question that we need an answer to, we don't have to wait anymore or puzzle it out. We just Google it. And so there is this this way also in which social media kind of encourages this herd mentality. And by the way, when we experience an emotion at the same time as somebody else, that's also reinforcing and, and releases a lot of dopamine, which can contribute to this idea that you know collectively the herd is making good decisions when it's really not it's just being driven uh, by the reinforcing properties of dopamine release so i do i do really worry that sort of by living in our limbic or emotion brain and constantly reinforcing or gratifying you know uh pretty much everything Um, we've lost the knack for delayed gratification for frustration tolerance for uncertainty uh, for nuance for complex problem solving
1: you know you look at uh, earlier generations our forefathers and foremothers um, and the way they dealt with these issues um, which kind of leads me on to another area there are groups at their churches and uh, non-religious groups have all these interesting um, ideas about fasting. Mm. And you look at, for example, the Catholic church and Christian churches, they have the season of Lent right. where they say, Hey guys, give up something, give up the cigarettes, mm. give up watching TV, um, give up your pleasure. So they must, there must have been some early wisdom there.
0: Absolutely. I love that you're right. That um, sort of recommendation repeats itself throughout human history, this idea of abstinence, a period of abstinence, a period of giving up. what i What I think is so fascinating is how we had that innate. We have had that innate wisdom for thousands of years, and now we have the neuroscience to show why it works. And that's just uh, something that just generally has always appealed to me, the ways in which inside us there is a knowing of what is right and good and that we should be doing. And um, and then much, much later, we, we discover the science to show what's actually going on. But we don't need the science necessarily uh, you know, to know what's right.
1: So you said earlier uh, about when this sign came and in an in earlier time you would have recommended antidepressants, but you told them to go on a fast. So do you still use medications in your practice or are you now more of a balance between fasting and some medications?
0: I use medications. Um, you know, I absolutely use medications because some people will do the dopamine fast and and not come back feeling any better than when they started. And those are individuals who clearly have a co-occurring psychiatric disorder. Um, and Oftentimes, some, some patients will come back and they will initially feel better from the dopamine fast, but as they continue to abstain, they might then develop um, you know, more uh, depression or more anxiety, even in the absence um, of, of that, using that drug of choice. And then I will often use medications. So the message here is not to get rid of medications. The the message is really to recognize that we need to both change our behavior and protect ourselves from too much dopamine um, at the same time that we need to make sure we pay attention to co-occurring psychiatric disorders and integrate their treatment with the behavioral interventions.
1: Well, on that very interesting note, Dr. Anna Lampke thank you for being on my show and good luck with your research and the book. Fascinating read.
0: Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's nine seven three five two nine four six nine 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 seven three five two nine four six nine nine. Email burndesk at gmail dot com. That's burndesk b y r n e desk at gmail dot com. Burndesk at gmail dot com. Subscribe for free.